You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again. You're back with Jay Shapiro. And we just passed the holiday of Shavuot, which is the holiday of the giving of the Torah, approximately 3,600 years ago. And uh, it turned out to be a, it's a one-day holiday here in Israel, but it was on Friday, so we had Shabbat right afterwards. Even though outside the country it's a two-day holiday, it was Friday and Saturday, we have a one-day holiday here, which was just Friday, but since it was immediately followed by Shabbat, so essentially it was two days, except the prayers uh, during the Shabbat were the normal uh, Shabbat prayers. Anyhow, uh, I had some time to think during the holiday, and perhaps I should have done the thinking before the holiday, but it was a very long day, and a lot of thoughts entered my mind. And I thought, and I always share those few thoughts with the listeners. Uh, we just spent, our people spent close to 2,000 years of exile, and now we have, again, our own country, our native country, the land that was promised to us by God, and it's really a privilege and it's a luxury to live here in Israel. And I think a lot about what life was like for Jews for years ago, my grandparents' time, or even when I was a kid. The state of Israel came into being in 1948 when I was 13 years old. So before that, all the generations couldn't even consider coming to the Holy Land, or certainly not moving to it. Now, and, and, and a lot the last, uh, let's say, 150 years has been really a changing time in Jewish his, history. And it's challenging imagining a different reality than what we have today. The kids who are raised today have no idea what it was like not to have a Jewish state, not to have a Jewish army. My own grandfather was a uh, soldier in the Tsarist army back at the end of the 19th century. And now I have grandchildren who serve in the Jewish army in a state that didn't exist when my grandfather lived. So it, it's really a challenging things. Over the past close to 2,000 years, Jews have suffered through exile, and, suffered, and they had the Romans, they had the, uh, the Greeks, then the Romans, and all kind of people uh, who took over the Holy Land, and the Muslims, and I think something like 10 different civilizations have passed over the Holy Land in the last couple thousand years. And our people faced uh, enemies and anti-Semites who tried not to not make them suffer, but actually tried to annihilate them. That happened more than once. Tens of thousands of Jews were killed and murdered over the years, uh, going back to the Crusades and pogroms, and of course the Holocaust. The Holocaust brought an 
already concerned Jewish world into really frantic worry. It became imperative that the Jewish people have their own state. And the state of Israel arose just a few years. The uh, Holocaust uh, was essentially over in 1945. The Jewish state came into being in 1948. It's three years later. It's really a miracle. So, 50 years before the Holocaust, early Zionists uh, were worried about a mass violent anti-Semitic event that would decimate European Jewry. The early Zionists couldn't envision an event as horrific as the Holocaust. Nobody could. But they knew that European Jewry was destined for something terrible. The Zionist first priority and main motivation, therefore, was to establish a Jewish state as a place of refuge and safety for European Jews. It's interesting. What they were looking for was a place of safety. They didn't necessarily think of a place to develop specifically Jewish culture. What they were looking for, the early Zionists, political Zionists, was simply a safe place for the Jews. The, of course, they, they specifically won the land of Israel. They were offered other places, but they understood the Jewish people, like all people, had a right to their historic homeland and to practice self-determination in their homeland. In homeland. And cultural Zionists wanted to create a state where Jewish culture would flourish. Religious Zionists wanted to recreate, recreate the Torah study houses of thousands of years ago, most of which, by the way, were, not, were in Iraq, Babylonia. They weren't in the Holy Land. So they essentially wanted to re rec recreate in the Holy Land something that had existed outside of the Holy Land. So the Zionists had a diverse set of goals and it, as it worked towards the creation of the Jewish state. So now, approximately 125 years after the start of the movement, the political Zionist movement can claim success. The Jewish people have established a state of their own that provides refuge for countless Jews in need. It has a military that is one of the best in the world has, and has proven itself capable of protecting Jews both at home and abroad. The idea now is to develop a particular and singular Jewish culture. And although the state of Israel is a center of Jewish culture and a center of religious studies, I find that the Jewish culture pretty much here, in my own opinion, is a copy of other cultures. Every major city in Israel has a theater. Uh, they, there's more Torah study in Israel on any given day than at any previous time in Jewish history. Israelis, by the way, they did a survey recently of, of happiness, and they found that Israelis are the fourth happiest people in the world. As someone said, I was talking to someone about the results of that survey, 
He said, if the Israelis are so happy, maybe they ain't getting the message. But I, there was, I, I don't believe that. So we are living in a Jewish renaissance. The post-Holocaust Jews, of whom six million have been killed, were often refugee survivors stuck in displaced person camps or even in internment camps. But the British put Jews in internment camps. The, it, it, it would only be a few years before millions of Jews living in Arab lands and Muslim lands would face their own wave of persecution and needed a place of refugees, refuge. It's interesting, a lot of the persecution of Jews and living in Arab lands was because they were persecuted. They had been persecuted in all different kinds in Arab lands. They were particularly persecuted because of the existence of the state of Israel. So the, the turnaround that the state of Israel brought to the Jewish people in all areas of their existence is absolutely miraculous. We have a experience, a renewal that is unprecedented. No other nation in the world, no other people in the world can make such a claim. It's interesting, by the way, about 10 years ago, I was visiting in Portugal. And Portugal has a lot of places of historic interest and cultural interest. I remember uh, someone telling me there, and he was our guide, that a tremendous number of uh, Portuguese live outside of Portugal. They have no uh, intention to return. And we have a Jewish day where we invite all the Jews to come back. Is the, the, what, what I think is a problem now that a lot of Jews, uh, particularly in the United States, that's the group that I'm most familiar with, simply don't have enough awareness of the history of the Jewish people. And what they do is they take Israel for granted. In my own family, I have relatives, second, third generation uh, in the United States who have married out. Their own children are not Jewish. And they, they don't even think about the state of Israel, the importance of the state of Israel. And you have to keep in mind something about Judaism. Judaism places a premium on remembering, and Jews study their past much more than they plan for the future. Now, it, it, it's interesting. There are those who say, well, maybe it's healthier to turn Jewish children into leader, leaders without the burdens of our dark past. Let them just continue Judaism, whatever it is. This way they can simply enjoy the wonderful world provided to them, particularly in a place like the United States. A life without trauma always seems more advantageous and attractive, but it's specifically the Jewish memory that motivates the Jewish people to recreate a better future for themselves and for their nation. When you look at the Jewish holidays, particularly Passover, Pesach, if you look at the rituals on Passover, I think most of them are devoted to memory. 
remembering who we are and and where we have been and what we've been through. Obviously, a life without trauma always seems advantageous and attractive, but it's specifically the Jewish memory that motivates the Jewish people to create a better future for their nation. Uh, and and we just passed the uh, holy day of Shavuot, when we remember that we once stood, our ancestors stood at Mount Sinai and received the Torah from God. That is a fantastic memory. The the knowing that the alternative to success isn't really failure, but the very real possibility of annihilation puts the importance of the Jewish state into perspective. And when I say annihilation, I don't talk about physical annihilation, which is always a problem. I'm talking about the fact that 70% of Jewish men in the United States marry outside the religion. They marry women who are not Jewish, and their children are not Jewish. So the uh, it's, a, it's a challenge teaching what Judaism is all about. But it is really a necessary job. And I must admit, I'm, I'm not in the field of education, and, and I never was, but there's no doubt that the key to the Jewish future is Jewish education. And it bothers me when I see that how poorly teachers are paid in Jewish schools, even here in Israel, but, uh, but uh, certainly in the United States. People should be attracted to teaching because without teaching, the Jewish people do not have a future. It's an interesting thing. Many years ago, I lived in Rehovot, and uh, I used to go to work in a carpool from Rehovot to Israel Aircraft. It's a, it's a ride of about a half hour, and we used to drive from Rehovot to the city of uh, Ramla. And uh, one of the um, fellows who drove in the car with us was a fellow who was born and raised in Israel. He had a doctorate. In science from the Weizmann Institute uh, in Rehovot. And one morning, uh, we uh, were going to work, and we had my son with us, and he got off at uh, Ramla because he attended a yeshiva called Shalavim. So on our way to work, we took him to school. My son, who today is a grandfather, was a kid like other kids, always had his shirt out. And he wore, of course, he wore tzitzit, he wore the fringes, and his fringes were hanging out. So one time we were going to work, and we took my kid, and he, the kid got off in uh, Ramla, and after he got out of the car, my friend, the doctorate in physics, said to me, what are those strings hanging out of his shirt? Here was a guy, born and raised, educated in Israel, had a doctorate from the Weizmann Institute, who had no knowledge of some of the basic, basic things in Jewish life. I don't say that everybody's got to be religious. I'm not quite, always quite sure of what religious means. 
But everybody should know Jewish history. Everybody should know what Shabbat is, even if they don't observe it. They should know what it is. They should know what Jewish clothing is, like the fringes, the tzitzit. If the education is so lacking that people don't know the basic things that comprise Judaism, and I don't say you have to do these things, you have to know what they are. And by the way, I think the same thing happens in other places. Uh, I think there are a tremendous number, my impression, there's a, a large number of people in the United States who don't know American history. They simply don't know. They think American history began 40 years ago. They don't. They can't even name the major figures in American history. I remember once I was asking uh, people, I was in Florida about 10 years ago, we were talking about education, and I asked a bunch of kids, could they name who Nathan Hale was? So I don't want to embarrass the listeners. Nathan Hale was an American during the Revolutionary War. He spied against the, uh, the British. He was caught and he was hung in New York City. His famous last words, if indeed he said them, was, I only regret that I have one life to give for my country. There are a tremendous number of kids who don't know who that was. And I think that's bad for America. In a tremendous number of kids here in Israel who don't know the basic things about Judaism and Jewish history and Jewish practice. And that is really not good. The key to the future, the key to the future of any country is education. If the kids don't know where they've been, they simply know where they're going. And here in Israel, which is the home of Judaism today, the lack of Jewish, proper Jewish education is really a threat to the Jewish future. So, as I said, after the uh, holiday of Shavuot last week, I gave some thought to where we've been and where we're going. And I don't know how often it happens to someone, even myself, all of a sudden, in the middle of the prayers on a holiday, you start thinking about what, what is it all about? We're sitting in the synagogue, we're saying ancient prayers, and my mind wandered back to my own childhood, to my grandparents, to Jewish history, and all these thoughts were brought to my mind just sitting in the synagogue. And I wanted to share with the listeners some of the thoughts that I had. Because without, as I said a moment ago, if you don't know where you've been, you don't know the direction you're going. If you don't know the direction you're going, you're not going to have a future. And it's something I really and truly worry about, not just for Israel, I worry about it for the United States also. The United States is the greatest country in the history of the world. I truly believe that. That's where I was raised. I left the United States for Israel more than 50 years ago because I wanted to be part of the Jewish future. But I still have softness and love in my heart for the United States. 
and I want it to survive. And I want it to be, have a healthy future. And when I read the news from the United States and the political fighting and uh, what's happening there, it worries me because there, the, the future depends, I think, to a large extent on knowing the past. I think both in Israel and in the United States, we have a serious problem of educating the present generation about who we are, what, where our, what our past has been, and what it means for our future. I'll be back after the break. Hi, my name is Michael Ben-Noach from Slovakia. Israel News Talk Radio is just the best radio station in the world, and I listen every day. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Our foreign minister, his name is Ellie Cohen, made a public statement that he set a goal to double the number of countries with embassies in Jerusalem in the year 2023. Keep in mind that the United States, the, uh, the major country, moved its Jerusalem, uh, its embassy to Jerusalem several years ago. And keep in mind that Jerusalem is Israel's capital. There are many states who do not keep their embassies in Jerusalem. They only keep diplomatic missions there, if at all. Now, four states have already moved their embassies to the capital. And, pa and uh, Papua New Guinea, a small place in the Pacific, promised to do this year. So if the Papua New Guinea has promised to do this year, that means that Cohen's target of four is one less. He only wants to move three capitals to uh, Jerusalem. Now, a European member state plans to break with the rest of the bloc in the coming months to open an embassy in Jerusalem, according to our foreign minister. He didn't say what country it is. Of the European Union states, Czechia, Hungary, Italy, and Slovakia have diplomatic offices in Jerusalem that could very easily be converted into embassies. There are persistent reports that apparently Hungary will be the one to make the move. But uh, the, his amba the ambassador from Hungary was approached, but he neither confirmed nor denied it. Now, Altogether, there are 10 other countries with diplomatic offices in Jerusalem, and several countries uh, uh, have made promises, move their embassies to Jerusalem in the years 
since the United States announced in 2017 that it intended to move its embassy to the capital. So, interestingly enough, about two weeks ago, uh, the foreign ministry here held a new ceremony for Jerusalem Day. And keep in mind, Jerusalem Day was uh, about a week and a half ago. It celebrates the day that Jerusalem was taken during the Six-Day War. So as part of this effort, the foreign ministry held a new ceremony for Jerusalem Day, something which it never did before, which celebrates the reunification of the eternal capital of the Jewish people. The flags of the United States, Guatemala, Honduras, and Kosovo were raised to honor them for already choosing to move their embassies to Jerusalem. Now, the, the truth of the matter is, Jerusalem is our capital, and the foreign minister's right. Not only should all embassies in Israel move to, to Jerusalem, but all those countries whose primary missions remain in Tel Aviv uh, should be reminded of the absurdity of their location. By the way, there are a number of countries whose primary missions are in either Ramat Gan uh, or Herzliya, both of which are near Tel Aviv, none of which is Jerusalem. You have to keep in mind, this is really important. Jerusalem has been the capital of the Jewish people for millennia. We pray in the direction of Jerusalem. It's the locus of our prayer, even during 2,000 years of exile. Even if one does not accept religious arguments, there's overwhelming archaeological evidence thousands of years of Jewish life in the city. Every day, they dig up new proofs of Jerusalem having Jewish residents. Right not far from the house, not from the apartment where I live, there are ongoing uh, archaeological digs, and they keep finding proof that Jerusalem was dwelt in by Jews thousands, thousands of years. Now, it's interesting that Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas claimed uh, or, uh, at, what, at the United Nations on what the UN called Nakba Day. Uh, he absurdly claimed that this week there's no proof of a Jewish connection to the old city of Jerusalem. Two days after this, the Antiquities Authority announced the discovery of a Second Temple era receipt on the pilgrimage roads to Jerusalem connecting the city of David to the Temple Mount about 2,000 years ago. And all the time, they were finding pieces of evidence that Jews have a historic claim to the city. Now, the modern state of uh, Israel made its cap its uh, Capital very clear from the inception, moving the Constituent Assembly, which is later renamed the Knesset, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in 1949. And interestingly enough, by the way, the Knesset uh, was located in a building on um, King George Street. I passed the building uh, many times during the week, 
and it's really in disrepair. Apparently, they haven't put up enough money to uh, essentially uh, redesign or to reestablish what the building looked like in 1949. Um, uh, since then, Jerusalem has been the seat of government, the Supreme Court's here, the Knesset, the president's residence, prime minister's office, and most other government ministries. Ambassadors all the countries make their way to Jerusalem to present their credentials to the president of Israel and to meet with diplomats and foreign ministry. Yet, they pretend, they actually pretend that Tel Aviv is the capital. Now, they may argue that Jerusalem is a city in dispute and they don't want to be move embassies there until the border between Israel and the Palestinians is finalized. Yet, at the same time, they make a distinction between the eastern and western parts of the city, with the east area of Jerusalem being predominantly Arab. Nine countries have consulate general in Jerusalem, uh, which, is, which functionally served the Palestinian popu population. The, so, uh, it's interesting, when they divided the country back, when the UN divided back in 1948, Jerusalem was called a corpus separatum, ostensibly not part of any country. Didn't belong to anybody, according to the UN. Now, all these countries don't seem to see the contradiction between arguing Israel's capital cannot be Jerusalem until there's a final settlement with the Palestinians and treating the city as it already contains the Palestinian capital. Somehow, in their thinking, Israel doesn't currently deserve any part of the city, and that is simply wrong. Now, there is a reality. These countries around the world must come to terms with reality. No country has the right to tell any other country where its capital is. Israel's capital is not Tel Aviv, it's not Herzliya, it's not Ramat Gan. It's Jerusalem, and it's been the capital, even before the existence of the State of Israel, it's been the capital of the Jewish people since the time of King David. That's more than 3,000 years ago. And Every time we dig further here in the city, we have more proof that this is true. All, all embassies should be in Jerusalem. It is our capital, and it deserves the respect as our capital. Along the same lines, there's something that I really think, uh, I, I can't think of a word other than disgraceful. This week, uh, I spent uh, a significant amount of time in the marketplace here in Jerusalem, which is called the shuk. It's simply uh, the Arabic word for a market. And there were a tremendous number of Israeli soldiers there in groups. Apparently, they were brought here under the auspices of the army to get to know the city better. The... the 
people have to visit, people have to visit here, people have to come here. An astonishing number of 50% of young Israelis visit our capital for the first time only when drafted into the Israeli army. The, the outside of the primary schools and the B'nai Akiva religious Zionist youth movement, not too many Israelis take note of the, on Jerusalem Day. On Jerusalem Day, several weeks ago, there were literally thousands upon thousands of young people, mostly B'nai Akiva religious uh, youth, who dance in Jerusalem. The number of secular young people dancing in the streets, you could count, literally count, because there were so few. The, the, this is an opportunity to step forward and rediscover Israel's historic national uh, uh, capital. It's time to make Jerusalem Day, at least, a formal civic holiday like Independence Day. Jerusalem is a, is a civic holiday only in the city of Jerusalem. Tel Aviv, Haifa, all the other cities continue the day just any like any other day of the week. So there, it, it, it's interesting that the state of Israel has not made this recognition. Uh, are Israeli Jews sensitive enough in Jerusalem to the plight of the poor, unemployed, the orphan, the battered women, the new immigrant, and the minority residents in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is now the largest city in Jerusalem, has a tremendous number of problems. The, uh, is Israel, Israel's justice system sufficiently suffused with knowledge of Jewish values uh, 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 alongside democratic norms, Jerusalem must be ruled wisely. The, this includes curbing the activities of radical Islamic and hostile nationalist forces in Jerusalem, investing significantly to advance and integrate the eastern part of the city, which is mostly Arab, expand the geographical boundaries of the city because the city needs a, today at least 100,000 new homes for young couples and they also expand the business space in the city and the, true, the city has to be cleaned up. If you enter Jerusalem by road, the major road coming from Tel Aviv, there's tremendous building going along happening there. Uh, the streets have been blocked for several years, but I simply think it is not enough. The, we, we have to draw closer to Jerusalem. Uh, this means, among other things, initiating a diplomatic and religious dialogue toward restoration of the Temple Mount as a place of prayer for all faiths. When the city was captured in 1967, the keys to the Temple Mount were turned over to the Muslims. And today, if a Jew goes up uh, to visit the Temple Mount, he's followed by Muslim guards to make sure that he doesn't do any praying. 
That is simply wrong. It's interesting, in uh, 1988, on Jerusalem Day, Rabbi Darren, uh, Dr. Aaron Lichtenstein, uh, a famous Rosh Yeshiva, the son-in-law son of, law of an even more famous Rosh Yeshiva, told his students, and I quote, it is important that we know how to appreciate the privilege of walking in the streets of Jerusalem. The dream held dear by generations has come true, the dream of hundreds and thousands of years. But we must appreciate Jerusalem not just as a capital which is flourishing economically, aesthetically, socially, and politically, but also a divine presence appearing and disappearing. Uh, uh, if you, there is a passage in the Song of Songs, passage uh, uh, chapter uh, 2, phase 17, it says uh, that the Spirit of God appears here. We should see not only the glory that exists, but also long for the glory that was prophesied. A formidable challenge awaits us. We must realize that longing, and we must set matters right. That is what Rabbi Lichtenstein said back in 1988. We really have to stake our claim for the Jerusalem. This is Israel's political, practical demand of the nations of the world. Recognize our birthright. Accept our claim to Jerusalem. We will not com compromise over Jerusalem. The redivision of Jerusalem is, in a sense, incompatible with our identity. Jews praise from pray in all parts of the world in the direction of Jerusalem, and now, after thousands of years, it has become it has come under Jerusalem. The uh, the uh, it's interesting. The the a um, you know it's interesting uh, that uh, the uh, an Apollo uh, captain in a in a in a in a moon launch uh, when a uh, the captain of the Apollo was trying to pin down his feelings. Uh, he looked for a place that gave him the anchorage of being linked to some earthly structure that reflects his feelings of uplift and end his spirit. And he said that he chose Jerusalem. Nations of the world need to understand that absolutism inherent in Israel's claim to Jerusalem is unshakably anchored in Jewish history and identity. From Jerusalem, the Jews made their way to all corners of the earth and they return. And the Jew can live in contemporary society only if he is touched by the eternity of his destiny. Jerusalem is more than a city. Jerusalem is an image. It's a symbol. It's something I, I don't even think I can explain. Jerusalem is not like any other place. And unfortunately, the state of Israel itself does not give enough rec recognition to the state. 
The very fact that Jerusalem Day is celebrated only in Jerusalem, I think, is a major error. The fact that 1949, everything uh, of importance to the state was moved to Jerusalem, but it hasn't been recognized by most of the nations of the world, and in a sense, it has, as hasn't been recognized by Israel either, by the very fact that Jerusalem is only a holiday for the Jerusalem Day, is a holiday for the city of Jerusalem, it's not a holiday for the rest of the country. And I think that is a terrible mistake, something that has to be corrected. If we don't give proper recognition to our capital, how can we expect other nations to do so? And Jerusalem Day was just a couple of weeks ago, and hopefully by next year, it will have more meaning for the state of Israel. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hi, this is Betsy Penn from Phoenix, Arizona, and I love Israel News Talk Radio for the interesting interviews, accurate information, spiritual guidance, political insight, humor, and passion for the truth. Howdy, Bruce Brill here from Nokdim, Israel, in Judea, the homeland of the Jews, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to touch upon several different items that, in this part of the program, these are items that don't get headlines, but uh, I think they describe what is happening in the state of Israel under the headlines, and people should be aware of them. The first has to do with the fact that the army in Israel is a people's army. What do I mean by this? When I was a kid back in the United States, everyone was eligible for the draft. Everyone had to serve if they were physically and mentally able. I myself took a physical for the American Army uh, right there when I was in graduate school, actually. Uh, as a matter of fact, I took the physical in Tsongedai the day after Russia when I was fasting. I was turned down by the American Army because they said my I was astigmatic. I was a little bit cross-eyed, and so wasn't eligible for the American Army. On the other hand, uh, astigmatic as I was, I was drafted into the Israeli Army a number of years later, and I actually served until I was 53 years old. However, so the American no longer has what could be called a people's army. On the other hand, Israel does have a people's army. Uh, the, uh, the chief of staff of the Israeli army, General Herzl Halevi, gave a talk about three weeks ago, and he strongly endorsed the people's army model. Uh, he said for 75 years, the people's army model has proven beyond any doubt that there is not and there must not be any substitute. It is the secret of the army, the IDF strength, the secret of the nation's strength, unquote. Now, uh, Halevi made the comment 
at the launch of a project called Walking the Paths of the IDF, in which soldiers take part in a legacy march following significant routes in the Israel Army history. By the way, just this week, uh, I'm, um, I'm recording this uh, broadcast on Tuesday, but on Sunday and Monday of this week, uh, my wife and I were in the shook in the uh, market here in Jerusalem, and it was place was really filled with soldiers, male soldiers, female soldiers, border police, regular army officers, enlisted men. Apparently, it's part of the army training to take these uh, these uh, enlistees and officers on trips all around to show them Israel, to show them Jerusalem. There are many people. Uh, in different parts of the country who have never really been to Jerusalem. Never. It's not on their schedule. Now, the army has taken upon itself that one of the things it must do is introduce the enlistees to the city of Jerusalem, the ancient uh, capital of the state of Israel. So we saw a tremendous number of soldiers in groups uh, visiting Jerusalem. Now, the uh, the People's Army model is based on the idea of Israel's founding Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion because he claimed that the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, should reflect all segments of the country, country's population. He believed that the army should be a melting pot that would create social cohesion among Israelis from diverse backgrounds and built up a national identity. Now, the regular army is relatively small. Uh, it draws on reservists from the entire population. Whenever, uh, God forbid, there's a war, the army itself, the basic army, the regular army, is really small. And God forbid, in emergency, they call up the reserves. I remember once, uh, many years ago, of Passover, on the holiday of Pesach, when I was given the responsibility and a number of other um, reservists, I was called in to deliver uh, enlistment calls to um, reservists. Remember, we spent a whole night uh, uh, putting, uh, giving notices to uh, reservists that they had to appear for duty. By the way, it's interesting. Uh, if a reservist wasn't home when we got to his house, the uh, order telling him to call had had uh, glue on its back, and uh, you stuck it over the keyhole to his door. So even if he wasn't home, it was sure he would see it if he came home. When he tried to put a key in his door to come home, he'd find a, uh, a call from the army to appear for duty. So the, the reservist army... Is, is what is needed in times of emergency because the regular army is relatively small. One of the primary aims of the People's Army model was for the military to be apolitical and in order to serve as a powerful force that functions above politics. Now, this is particularly relevant in light of the government's controversial new draft bill that would lower the exemption rate for ultra-Orthodox men from 26 to between 21 and 23. In other words, Haredi, ultra-Orthodox men, who were, uh, were, let's say, learning in yeshivot, 
are exempt um, to, to the age of 26. Now this new law will make them exempt only up to the age of 23. Under this proposal, yeshiva students will exempt from military service so they can join the workforce at a younger age. In other words, they're free from the army until an earlier age, at which time they're expected to join the workforce, which is important. Now, currently, um, many choose to continue their religious studies until the age of 26 in order to avoid serving. Now, at the age of 21, they can go out and get a job. Uh, so, right after this, uh, when they, uh, uh, this new draft bill, Prime Minister Netanyahu convened a high-level meeting in Jerusalem to discuss the new bill. Government officials pointed out that the new bill would also include an increase in amount of compensation and benefits for those who do serve in the IDF. By the way, uh, just this week, um, um, I have a granddaughter who was a major in the Israeli army. She was a professional. She served at the headquarters in uh, Tel Aviv, and she retired from the army this week, and she had a big farewell party at her army base, and now she's seeking employment in uh, private industry. Uh, so, uh, as, as the listeners know, that men and women serve in the army here in Israel. It's a big army now, but whether or not women should be in combat units. That's a complicated argument that really does not have much to do with religion. If, uh, for example, if a, uh, a soldier is injured in combat and he has to be carried by a, uh, one of his comrades, it's pretty hard for a 120-pound woman to carry a 200-pound soldier. That's a story unto itself. So uh, uh, this new bill, as I said, includes an increase in the amount of compensation those who continue to serve in the army. Now, a senior military official told reporters at this meeting, they, there was a briefing after the meeting, and uh, he said that the legislation would be acceptable as long as the Israeli army, the Israel defense, remains a people's army. It's forbidden to violate the balance of drafting all segments of the population including the ultra-Orthodox. He pointed out that the army has developed special tracks for ultra-Orthodox soldiers, including something called the Nachal Haredi, in which soldiers from ultra-Orthodox backgrounds serve together. There were no women involved. So these ultra-Orthodox people said, look, they don't want to serve together with women. That's understandable. So they have an ultra-Orthodox group uh, called Nacho Haredi. It's something that came into existence a number of years ago, and it's grown quite a bit. I don't recall what the actual numbers are, but it's quite a group of people. And uh, often here in Jerusalem, you see them walking down the street, they have long sideburns, and they have their uh, fringes hanging out of their garments while they're carrying big weapons. Doing something nice to see. Considering the fact for 2,000 years Jews didn't have their own army, and now you see soldiers walking through the shuk in Jerusalem with who, who look, except for the fact they're in uniform, the fact they're carrying weapons, they look like uh, Hasidic Jews. 
any rate, the currently about a third of young Israeli men do not enlist in the army. About half of them are from the Haredi section who are exempted from duty under the current draft law. Now, this current draft law expires on July 31st. And about 45% of women do not serve in the military on religious grounds, although many do civilian national service instead. For example, um, it's interesting, my two daughters, who are now grandmothers, did not serve in the army, but they put in two or three years doing national service. Uh, one of my daughters taught in a school for, uh, for uh, uh, indigent people, and one of them served in the place in Anana for uh, invalids. So they did national service instead of army service. In the meantime, a generation later, my granddaughters, who were the daughters of my two daughters who didn't serve in the army, do indeed serve in the army. So things change, but everybody has an obligation. We take this obligation upon ourselves to serve the people. So... Uh, now there's a proposal by the finance minister, Bitzalel Shmotrich, which he calls a new social contract for sharing the burden. That's the title of his proposal. And under this, the government would prior prioritize equality in the economic burden over the military burden while minimizing inequality to IDF soldiers by shortening the length of IDF service and providing benefits to those who do, do serve. In other words, some people will be exempt from the army. On the other hand, those who do serve will have higher salaries than they used to get. Currently, Israeli men are expected to serve for a minimum of 32 months and women for a minimum of 24 months. Women serve two years Men served essentially almost three years. Now, Israel cannot allow the People's Army model to be undermined. It is vital to both the security and the social cohesion of the state. The government has to reach a fair national consensus on this new draft bill based on some model as the head of the army told the soldiers, referring to uh, the upcoming the future, we will put on our uniforms and leave all disputes outside so that the citizens of Israel and its youth will know that we have one common denominator, the security of the state. So it's very important uh, my personal belief that everyone has to give to the state. And in the case of my own children, it's interesting. I think my family's a good example. My own children, the men served in the army, my, and my, my sons, the girls served in national service. Both had the responsibility to serve the country. Now, a generation later, some of my grandchildren, including girls, serve in the army. And as I said, one of my granddaughters became a professional soldier. And she retired last week as a major in the army. So uh, it's interesting. I often think, what will my grand 
grandfather I have thought. My grandfather, I used to hear a lot of stories when I was a kid. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And uh, that's, by the way, how I learned how to speak and read Yiddish. But my grandfather served in the Russian army under uh, two czars. He served two years under Alexander and two years under Nikolai. Uh, in those days, you served four years. And after he'd been in the army for two years, Alexander died and Nikolai took over. Nikolai eventually, by the way, in English is called Nicholas. He eventually got assassinated in the, uh, in the Russian Revolution uh, some years later. So uh, my grandfather came to the United States in 1905. And, and uh, our, our, my parents, my parents were born in Europe, actually. And they came to the United States as children. I was born to the United States and I came to, uh, to Israel. So our, uh, our generations weren't in the United States that long. That's a story unto itself. But my, my, I remember I had a friend who was uh, raised in Vienna. Uh, and during the uh, 1930s, when Nazism was, arrived, uh, was growing, particularly in Austria, he, he, uh, my friend told me that his father used to say, I wish there would be a Jewish army. So the Jews didn't have an army for close 2,000 years, and now we have one of the strongest armies in the world, and our the responsibility now is to see that everybody does some form of national service. It's not fair for the burden of national service to be, ca be carried only by a few people, only by a few sectors of society. National service in one form or another is an obligation for every citizen of the state of Israel. So as I said a moment ago, there are, uh, there are new bills being put forth in the Knesset <coughs> to lower the age of uh, exemption from the army from 26 to 21. But there are conditions, apparently, I don't know the details, all the details of the bill, but the idea is to, is to see everybody done, does some form of service for the country. And that's important. Now, I want to go over to another subject just to finish this segment of the program. And uh, that has to do with uh, the following. About a week ago, the American government, government, the Biden White House, unveiled a new unprecedented national strategy to fight Jew hatred. It's called the U.S. National Strategy to Counter Anti-Semitism. And they put out a document, and uh, it's interesting. The document, I think, has something like 65 pages. I'm sorry, it's 60 pages. And it lists a hundred items to be implemented to fight Jew hatred. And the list really falls into several rubrics. Most important is increasing awareness and understanding of anti-Semitism, which includes its threat to America, and learning more about Jewish history. The plan also includes bolstering security for Jewish communities. The hardest part of plan to implement will be the goal of reversing the normalization of anti-Semitism. There's something called building cross-community bridges 
to fight all forms of hate throughout the United States, not just anti-Semitism. <coughs> At the rollout of this Biden plan, the 60-page plan, the uh, Biden's chief domestic political advisor, Susan Rice, cited a shocking study that reported that 85% of Americans believe at least in some form of anti-Semitic stereotype, uh, which he called, of course, um, uh, unacceptable. There is, so uh, people have said that this is a historic moment in modern fight against what's known as the fight against the world's oldest hatred, anti-Semitism. So the, um, we can only hope that this initiative by the American government will make a difference. For years, experts have discussed reasons why people don't like Jews. One suggestion is simply ignorance and lack of education. Another suggestion is jealousy. And others assert the religious animus is the root cause of the oldest hatred. So obviously, Biden's plan will not solve the problem. It won't eliminate Jew hatred. It might, however, make some kind of small difference. And however small that difference is be, it's important. So uh, we can't, we Jews cannot solve the age-old problem of anti-Semitism by ourselves. If we could, anti-Semitism would have eradicated long ago. However, it's rearing its ugly head again, particularly across the United States now. I won't go into the statistics, but it's rising again. I think it, it uh, became, uh, uh, what, uh, Anti-Semitism wasn't too popular after the Second World War when they realized what had happened to the Jews. However, it is rising again, according to all the statistics. So this battle requires the masses to stand up and work together to combat this hatred. Because it is an age-old hatred, and when it exists in a democracy, it's not for the democracy. If there's anti-Semitism in a democracy like in the United States, and not just bad for the Jews, it's bad for the United States to have that kind of hatred. At any rate, I just wanted to pass this news across. I'll be back after the break. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about... uh, I guess I, I guess the subject could be called uh, American Congress Women and uh, Anti-Semitism and the Palestinian Authority. I think that's the best combination to describe what I want to talk about. Two weeks ago, an American Congresswoman, her name is Rashid Talayib, and she had a, an event held in the Congress 
called the Nakba 75 and the Palestinian people. Now, she did this to mark what the Palestinians call Nakba, which is an Arabic word, and the word means a catastrophe. And what kind of catastrophe are they talking about? They're talking about the establishment of the Jewish state after 2,000 years. So to them, the day of the establishment of the Day of Israel is Nakba Day. Now, the, the people were invited to this event in Congress, and the, uh, the invitation to the event said that, and I quote, 75 years ago, Zionist militias and a new Israeli military violently expelled approximately three-quarters of all Palestinians from their homes, uh, unquote. Now, the truth of the matter is, and we all know, if we keep apprised of history, there's a lot of reasons why the Palestinians became refugees. For example, in one case, some of the Arab leadership told the uh, Palestinian Arabs to step aside so they won't get hurt when the Egyptian and the other armies came in and, uh, and destroyed the Jewish state as it was coming into being. So the Arab, a lot of Arabs left uh, because they didn't want to be around, and then they figured they'd come back after the Jews were destroyed or kicked out. Although there, in, there were cases, and I think it's true in the city of Lud, that the Arabs were indeed driven out because there was near the airport, there were strategic reasons for doing so. But this kind of thing ha- happens in all kind of wars. But there was no attempt by the Jews in any way to just start murdering Arabs. They wanted, for example, the area near the uh, Lourdes Airport to be kept clear, and so they uh, forced the Arabs away. That indeed did happen. But there's no, there was mass there was no mass turning of Arabs into refugees. Following the passage of the partition plan back in 1947 by the UN, uh, Arab riots actually broke out. Palestinian Arabs, those living in uh, Palestine and Eretz Israel, started rioting against their Jewish uh, neighbors and a civil war erupted. And during the fighting, local Arab leaders encouraged the Palestinian Arabs to leave. To leave. To flee, actually. They said, We're go- you get out of the way so we can come in and kill the Jews. And a real example could be seen in what happened in the city of Haifa, which had a very a mixed population. Still does, by the way. But apparently had a very large Arab population in 1948. And in January of that year, the uh, Hajimin al-Husseini, the Mufti, uh, inst- instructed a delegation of Arabs in Haifa to remove, and I quote, to remove the women and children to the danger areas in order to reduce the number, reduce the number of casualties. So in other words, there were a lot of Arabs, and particularly in Haifa, who were ordered by the Mufti of Jerusalem to leave so that the Arab armies could come in and kill the Jews, then they couldn't back. And now, in March of the same year, uh, Hajimid al-Husseini uh, issued this decree in uh, January of 48. In March of 48, the, there was a thing in Haifa called the Arab Committee, and they, uh, they said the same thing. They called for an orderly evacuation 
of the women and children. When the Haganah arrived in Haifa in April of 1948, only about half of the city's inhabitants remained. A lot of them simply listened to their orders given to them by the Arab leadership, and they left. And by the way, the Times of London reporting on the events transpiring on April 22, 1948, recounted, and I quote, that the Jewish Haganah asked using loudspeakers for Arabs to remain in their homes, but most of the Arab population followed their leaders who told them to leave the country. And also, in May of 1948, Time Magazine, not Times of London, Time Magazine article said the mass evacuation prompted partly by fear, partly by order of Arab leaders, left the Arab quarter of Haifa a ghost city. By withdrawing Arab workers, their leaders hoped to paralyze Haifa. Uh, apparently what had happened was <clears throat> during the time of the British mandate, starting around in, around 1920, the British built a port in Haifa, a port which of course has since that time expanded. It's Israel's major port. And a lot, a lot of Arabs worked at the port. And the Arab leadership figured if they could get the Arabs to leave, the port, the port would be paralyzed. So they encouraged them to leave. And uh, the another London weekly called The Economist reported on the effects of Arab leadership having a massive fleeing in October 48 and mentioned that, and I quote, <clears throat> of the 62,000 62, Arabs who lived in Haifa, no more than five or 6,000 remain. Various factors influenced the decision to flee. Uh, uh, to uh, There's but little doubt that the most potent of all the factors were the announcements made by, in, on the air, over the air by the higher Arab executives urging, urging the Arabs to leave. And it was clearly intimated that those who remain in Haifa and accepted Jewish protection would be regarded as the renegades. That's from The Economist back in 1948. And I'm, I'm quoting the uh, factual uh, report of the year that uh, Israel came into being. So aside from Haifa and the cities of Tiberias, Local Arab leaders chose to clear the town of the Arab inhabitants, and the, actually the British helped the Arabs to leave. <clears throat> and um, Jaffa, which was a primarily Arab city then, there's still a lot of Arabs today, uh, in that city, the Arab leaders organized the evacuation of roughly 20,000 residents that did not flee during or before the fighting. So this kind of thing happened all over, in, in tens of Arab villages during the course of the war in 1948, they were encouraged to leave from the state of Israel, the newly born state of Israel. They were encouraged to leave by their leadership. <clears throat> now, uh, the uh, immediately after the uh, May 15th, when um, the British left, 
The Arab armies invaded Israel with the intention of destroying the state of Israel. And Arab leaders believed they would achieve victory quickly. And um, and that was they, they figured the Jews were too weak. Uh, we all know the history. Uh, thank God the Arabs didn't win. Now, while these <coughs> Arab armies were pushing into Israel, the newly created state, these Arab leaders encouraged the Arabs living in Israel to get out of the way of the advancing Arab armies and promised them they would be able to return quickly after the war when they'd gotten rid of the Jews. For example, the Iraqi prime minister at that time, a guy named Nouri Said, was quoted as saying, we will smash the country with our guns and obliterate every place the Jews seek shelter in. The Arabs should conduct their wives and children to safe areas until, filling, until the fighting has died down. Unquote. This is this is typical of what the Arab leadership was telling the Jews at the time. While in Haifa, for example, the, the Haganah was begging the Arabs uh, to stay there. They, they would not be harmed. Now, it's true that so many refugees relied on the promises made by the Arab leadership, and they fled because they didn't think they'd be fleeing for long. They figured they would leave. The Arab armies would destroy the upcoming Jewish state, and then they return home. Um, uh, the refugees were confident that their absence would not last longer than perhaps a few weeks. The leaders had promised them that the Arab armies would crush the Zionists very quickly, and there was no need for panic or fear of, of a long exile. So they, they left. Uh, the, um, by the way, many refugees themselves have corroborated what I just said. A, um, a Palestinian refugee, uh, uh, his name was Fuad Khader, uh, he explained in an interview broadcast on the official Palestinian Authority television on May 15, 2013, that, and I quote, the one who made us leave was the Jordanian army because there were going to be battles. It would be under their feet. So they told us leave in two hours. We will liberate you, and then you'll return. This is what the Arab leadership told the average living in Palestine. It's funny, uh, there, there were essentially, from the, the, uh, from the quotes and the documentation I've been able to find on this subject, while the Jews were telling them uh, to stay, begging them to stay, particularly in a place like Haifa, because the port was operated pretty much, pretty much with Arab workers, uh, the Arab leadership was saying to them uh, one of two things. Either get out of the way so we can get rid of the Jews and then you can come back, or get out of the way or Jews will harm you. That was the, ar the argument taken by the Arab leadership convincing the Arabs to leave. Uh, and so uh, it's also true why a, um, a, a, a one of the Jordanian uh, ministers of parliament there it was quoted uh, sometime later, and he said that uh, he, he, he lived originally in Jaffa, and he recalled that cars with megaphones roamed the streets, 
demanding that people leave so the fighting would succeed. They called in Arabic, we the Palestinians, the fighters want to fight and don't want you to impede us, so we've asked you to leave Jaffa immediately. So what happened was that a lot of Arabs simply picked up and left. And by the way, it's interesting, if you ever have driven from, uh, for example, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem on the main, the main road, is a place called Abu Ghosh, which is an, an Arab uh, village. Uh, but I don't, I used, I forgot the exact history of the place, but the Arabs living there didn't come from the Middle East. They came from, I think, uh, somewhere uh, in what the Soviet Union. And they decided that they would uh, not fight against the Jews. Indeed, they would, uh, I don't know if they served in the uh, Jewish army, but they, they agreed not to fight. And so this very large Arab city, and you, you can pass through it as you go into Jerusalem today. It's, it's full of restaurants and, uh, and uh, places where you can buy uh, uh, trees and agricultural products. It's a very successful village. And recently they just built a very big mosque with four huge towers with gold in the top. Really very impressive. At any rate, they decided not to leave. But the other Arabs listened to their leadership and they left. So, beside encouraging the Palestinians to flee, the Arab leaders also contributed to the plight of the Palestinians by exaggerating or creating false stories of Jewish atrocities. For example, for, example, uh, for uh, instance, uh, a newspaper, a Jordanian newspaper, had an article back in uh, 1993 in which a Palestinian refugee said the Arab exodus from other villages was not caused by the actual battle, but by the exaggerated description spread by Arab leaders to incite them to fight the Jews. So why, why have I brought this entire subject up? Because in, in summation, the, the, the fact that an American congresswoman, this uh, Rashida Talib is now holding an event in Washington, in the Capitol, entitled Nakba 75, and the Palestinian people, to mark what is called the Nakba, which, which, as I said before, is the Arabic word for a catastrophe. And this is the word that's been used to refer to Israel's establishment, as I said a moment ago. But the facts are very, very different. The, in, in many places, particularly in Haifa, uh, the, uh, the, the newly created Jewish army begged the Arabs to stay. And I think one of the reasons was, as I understand it from my reading of history, that the, the port that had been built by the British, when took, the British took, took over the mandate in uh, right after the First World War, many of the workers and uh, who, who operated the port for the British. And they had the expertise that was required to keep the port um, uh, working. So the Jews not only wanted the Arabs to stay because they didn't intend to do them any harm, but they felt that if the Arabs left, the Jews themselves would have a difficult, difficult time operating the port. Because the main uh, understanding and the workmanship in the port itself was actually done by Arabs. 
So not only were the, were the um, Haganah leaders telling the Arabs, don't leave, we're not going to harm you, but we'd like you to stay so you can keep working. But the, uh, the Arabs have turned all this around, and uh, the Arab leaders contributed to Palestinians becoming refugees. And uh, now they're, they're, they come to a point where even in the U.S. Congress, a member of Congress is, uh, is commemorating, I don't want to use the word celebrating, that would be the wrong word, He's commemorating in the halls of Congress what they call the catastrophe of the state of Israel coming into being. So the 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 statement put out by Tlaib, this uh, congressman, is unequivocally false because the Arab leaders contributed to the Palestinians become refugees by promising all kinds of things and and uh, in some places even forcing them to leave, telling them to leave so you'll get out of the way so we can come in and destroy the Jewish army and uh, destroy the Jewish state, and he can come back home. It'll only be a question of a few days, a few weeks, perhaps a few months. That is the truth. And the reason I bring this up is, again, as I said a moment ago, it is simply... I, I don't know if the word is disgraceful, but it's certainly ahistoric that a American congressional member, member of Congress, is using the halls of Congress to mark an event that is completely historically wrong. And I understand that uh, a Jewish senator, the one from Vermont, uh, supported this. Because when the uh, when uh, Congresswoman Rashid Tlaib uh, wanted to have the event in a certain room, I think that the uh, the uh, leader of the House, the uh, uh, House of Representatives, did not give her permission to uh, use certain rooms, and they indeed went ahead with the uh, with this event, this Nakba event, in different rooms. Uh, I forget what the details are. I read about it about a week ago. But the bottom line is that an American congresswoman is built a commemoration day based on lies. And this uh, event took place in the halls of the American Congress. And it's interesting, by the way, that um, most Americans, and I'm sure most congressmen, simply are unaware of the real history. If more of them knew about the history, I think more of them would be opposed to uh, using the halls of Congress as this kind of event, although the leader of the House apparently does know, and he did not allow it to be used in certain rooms. So the reason I brought this up, after all these years, we're, we're, we're talking years and years later, but it, it's it's sort of embarrassing almost the city of Merton Congress used for the, for the event that's a false event. It celebrates something that didn't happen. And to do so in the halls of Congress, I think is sort of embarrassing for the American Congress. Um, that's it for this week. Till next week, Jay Shapiro signing off. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>